Hi, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. Today's episode is a very, very interesting conversation with Sarah Hendren. Sarah is a designer, a writer, an artist, and professor whose work centers around adaptive design, prosthetics, and inclusive design. She teaches socially engaged design practices and designing for disabilities at Olin College and is the writer of Abler, which is a site that collects examples of this type of design practice in the widest sense. I've been following Sarah's work for a few years now and was really interested in talking to her about her own background and how she thinks about this work, as well as the role of criticism and writing in her design practice. And then we also talk about using critical design to actually make change. She has this great point of view that design has this inherent optimism in it. And I love this phrase that she uses in our conversation that design is where ideas can live in things. I am so glad that I got to talk to Sarah and think that she brings a new perspective to the podcast and we get into some things that rarely come up in these conversations. So I've collected so many of the things we talked about in the show notes. If these subjects interest you, there's a lot of further reading you can do both uh, on the Scratching the Surface website and of course you should check out her site, Abler. I thought this conversation was so interesting and inspiring, and I'm so happy I can share it with you. So here is my conversation with Sarah Hendren. I was really struggling, to be honest, with how I wanted to kind of structure this conversation with you, because there are a lot of different things that I kind of want to talk to you about. And so I thought a good place to start is just a little bit of your background and how you got started in design. I think I read somewhere that that you had some sort of history background or something. So let's just start with kind of mapping that out a little bit. Yeah, sure. Um, so my, I've had one of those very circuitous careers, and I have a, a BA in visual arts, so painting and drawing okay. in college. And the studio art program at in college was good, but very studio-based and really kind of old school. So I didn't have any sense of mm-hmm. – so for me, design was kind of like, oh, that's for people who are commercial and want to make money. And, <laughs> you know, yeah. and if you want to work in ideas, then you've got to be doing this other the gallery thing. So – and then I got, I, I spent a couple of years teaching. I got kind of dissatisfied with just the, um, the language, the pure language of painting. And I think I was struggling for a richer new media integrated practice that was going on then, but that I just wasn't aware of. And um, then I got a job in education research. And then I thought, I really want to know the history of these ideas, I was kind of thinking a lot about John Dewey and experiential Um, education. And I just had these bigger questions about like, why do we assume what we assume? So I applied to and got into a history program at UCLA in cultural and intellectual history, but not art history, just straight up history, and got really into the history of science. And it was like, fantastic in terms of the coursework. And then like went overseas, like went to the Netherlands and did my dissertation research. And, um, after, after the coursework, when I started kind of doing my own kind of piecing together what's going to be my dissertation, what am I going to specialize in, I started to have these nagging doubts about the output of academic writing. And yeah. I would go to like academic conferences and I would think, 
I don't really want to go to dinner with these people. Not because they're not great, but they're not my people. Do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. I'm not like restless and eager to continue this conversation all day. Yeah. So that felt a little, and I remember in the Netherlands, like actively doing my dissertation research and saying to my husband, I, I got a bad feeling about this. Like, I don't think this is me. And I said to him, I think I want to be like a furniture maker and a journalist. Okay. And this was like in 2002, 2003. Okay. And what I was naming then that I didn't realize at the time was I want to do some thinking and some text, you know, logocentric work. I want to produce those ideas, but in an accessible form. And I want to have a making practice. Right. I want to do both those things. And I didn't think at the, even then that that was possible that you could do that. Like you got to kind of pick and mm -hmm. like you got to have mm -hmm. a, you know, a recognizable yeah. profession. So I dropped out of my PhD program. I, uh, and, and I freelanced and kind of cobbled together jobs and I started making paintings and had some more shows and eventually discovered kind of public new media, new genre artwork. And I thought, oh, this is where mm -hmm. ideas can live in things. Oh, right. I see ideas and things. And I started Abler as a way to, I realize now it didn't seem like it at the time. But, well, I just say, at the time, I thought, I need a new website for my work. I'm making some paintings or whatever. But I don't want the, my website to be an online gallery. I want this website to be collegial and, and you know, like, fi find a community of people who are interested in these same kinds of things. And how can I do that? And I was looking around at, like, Building Blog yeah, and, like, yeah. Nicola, Nicola Twilley mm -hmm. and um, uh, Pruned. And, yeah. uh, you know, and I just thought, like, oh, these are people who are looking at culture as an index of ideas and they're they're kind of focused on this area but it's, it's like a super wide canopy but like just constrained enough and mm -hmm. just wide enough and i thought i want to do this for prosthetics now i'm leaving out that i had my first child in 2006 who has down syndrome so at the time i was just starting to really migrate my practice between painting and like public arts and going like is this what it is kind of thing and then my son's birth Mm -hmm. And everything I discovered in mm -hmm. disability culture, so all the wearables, all the gear, then everything kind of went like this, like sort of locked right. together. And I went like, oh, ideas, politics, stakes, convivial material culture. And that's how I got into design, like kind of the back door. Like fine arts is really kind of my first training in love. And so I realized, yeah, and I realized that design was actually the super blurry house to be mm -hmm. thinking about politics and, and symbolic languages and symbolic culture. So that's like the, yeah, short yeah. version, but I mean, I mean, no, that's so, it's so interesting for a lot of different reasons. And, and as you were saying that I was kind of just looking over my notes of the things that I wanted to talk to you about and you hit on <laughs> all of those things. So now I need to <laughs> kind of figure out which of that I want to kind of pull from. Sure. Um, yeah. The thing, the thing that I really like about your work and what you do is, for me as a graphic designer, and there's this kind of strand of graphic designers that call themselves, uh, you know, or work in, in fields that they call critical design or speculative design or design fiction. And it all has a certain kind of look to it, a certain... Uh, aesthetic to it a certain kind of like feel to it and it's all very yeah. much you know it blurs that line kind of like what you were saying it blurs that line between 
design and art and it feels like something that lives in a gallery instead of something that lives in the world which is kind of where design should be and that's Mm -hmm. what I think is so interesting about what you do is I think your work falls under all of those things but it's also very real yeah how do you how do you kind of think about about that I don't know I don't know if I really even have a question in there but how do you kind of think about that intersection yeah, I mean, I went in the early days. So like, and I had three children in five years. So this was in LA. My son was born. Yeah, that, and that was like a whole like, wow, discovering parenting. And then also um, this sort of extra stuff going on for him and doctors and therapists and so on. And then another child and we moved across the country. So there was a lot going on. In other words, the online realm, digital realm and Twitter and stuff kind of became a lifeline for me to go like, I'm doing something, I'm migrating my practice right now and I'm trying to figure out what that is. So in the process of kind of researching prosthetics and stuff, I came across like the work of Wendy Jacob. She was super Mm. influential for me. She was working, at that time she was working at the ACT program at MIT, the Art, Culture and Technology program. And she had been working on autism, and she made these, she worked with Temple Grandin, who's this very famous um, autistic self-advocate. She's a, in animal husbandry, written a bunch of books about the experience of autism. Okay. And Grandin um, has kind of sensory processing atypicalities, the way a lot of people who identify on the autism spectrum do. And, and Grandin had built for herself um, a hugging machine, like a chair she would step into at the end of her day that would give her a deep compression hug that a lot of people tend to get from other people, affection, but that she found overwhelming. She found human contact overwhelming, but she found this pressure machine to be like a great proxy. Mm -hmm. And the New Yorker did a profile of, of, sorry, the New Yorker published an essay of Oliver Sacks, um, who was, had written a book. Um, I think this is in an anthropologist on Mars. Yeah. Because it's Temple Grandin who, called herself an anthropologist on Mars, the, the mismatch between her sensory organization and the built world. And, and oh. Sachs, in this amazing essay, describes that hug machine. And this was in the late 90s in New Yorker. And I read that article, too. So funny. So then I discovered Wendy's work. Wendy went to Temple and said, I love this idea of the hug machine, not just for you. Like, I think there's a clue there. Mm-hmm. Like, you've built this thing that's just for your diagnostics. But what, what if what if furniture did give you a hug? Like, what if you could activate an affective, affectionate furniture? And so she and Grandin kind of talked about the thing. And then Wendy, because she's at MIT, worked with some engineers to create this, like, it looks like a club chair and it reaches up over you and will hug you and you mm-hmm. pump it. It's got this um, pump, foot pump on the side. So then, like, another person can, like, pump up that pressure and give you this giant squeeze with a chair and this to me was a total revelation like I thought oh my gosh that product is therapeutic and poetic at once like it's doing it's functional and it's also doing this like incredibly the work has so much pathos behind it and I thought that's that is my true north Mm -hmm. like I just discovering and and discovering like Natalie Jeremajenko and Krzysztof Vodichko people whose work was deeply issue-based and political, but also playful and expressive. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I guess Natalie and Christoph, they, they are a little bit more in the straight-up art world. Wendy's work is consumed as art. But I was so taken with the idea that Wendy made these squeeze chairs. Some of those chairs went to classrooms with autistic children in them as therapeutic objects, and some of them went to galleries. 
Yeah. And Wendy's even more interested in those as art. But I felt like, okay, what what if you could have a whole practice that walked that line so finely, you know? Right. Like, yes, it works and it attends to real constraints and real conditions and maybe half of its life is functional and then maybe half of its life is frictional and I'm making this, you know, hand gesture back <laughs> right. and forth yeah. like, like hopping a fence. To me, that sweet spot is just like, and that's what, and, and also hearing, um, I was also really influenced by um, Alfredo Jar, this um, Argentinian artist that I took a class with um, while I was at Harvard GSD. So that was all after Harvard GSD came came later after my kids and kind of w- I went back to school. But okay. Alfredo Jar in this seminar talks about um, use and poetics and that drawing those two together. If use and poetics can live right there on the same line, mm. they're usually kind of you know, at opposite ends of an axis, but if you can, you know, draw them, you know, together, that that's really where a lot of the sweet spot is. And that some of the work, you know, that you make in your life can lean toward the poetic and some of it can lean toward use. And I think for me, my practice has been about insisting that one house can, can encompass both work that is useful and work that is, and not every work in the critical design, speculative design sense, not every work has to look and feel the same. It doesn't all have to be Uh fictional. But right. it doesn't also all have to be manufacturable, you know, but letting both those things live together, that's been, that's what's mo- motivated me. So then I started down this path of thinking, well, what, then I started down this path of collecting on Abler all the work that I loved that could be considered prosthetic. So, and I thought, mm-hmm. I'm just going to like, you know, in this giant, I'm going to be this giant filter mm-hmm. and it's going to be artists who are not even thinking about disability at all. It's going to be very legible prosthetics. It's going to be wearables. And of course, the history of these objects is long and wide, you know? So, yeah. and over the course of collecting that stuff, kind of magazine style, and I had in my mind this reader, like this wired magazine reader, this kind of like uh-huh. very, very techie Silicon Valley person on their lunch break with like a giant sandwich on their desk, like clicking around. You know what I mean? And I thought, yeah. like, what if I could get that reader to think twice about prosthetics that aren't the kind of, you know, myoelectric, super high-tech robotic arms, but that are this other thing. You know, like, and So having that reader in my mind, I thought, what, what meaning can you make if I put all those things in adjacency? But I didn't know at that time was that I was trying to write myself into a point of view about working mm-hmm. in design, about the yeah. making, right? And it wasn't until my friend Jeff Goldenson, who's my colleague here at Olin, said to me, well, this is what Kohlhaas did. He wrote his thesis on Kohlhaas. And he said that he wrote early in his practice as a way of kind of, it's almost like Mm -hmm. psyching yourself up for going like, I think I want to insist on both these things. Or I think I want to try to, I want to bring these two things together and not sacrifice either of them, you know? Mm -hmm. And and so now I've done a lot less writing, but I've done a lot more making. And I've, I've realized, oh my gosh, that Abler was all about that. All about like revving up to a point of view and then being able to have a language to to defend it, you know. Yeah, uh, it, it's that's re- it's so interesting. I I interviewed Michael Rock, who um, is a designer at Two by Four, and he writes uh, has written a lot about design. He currently writes for the New York Times, kind of about design in, in a really wide sense. But he has this great phrase when I interviewed him, where he said that uh, design is just an elaborate form of writing. Uh, and it's the same type of idea. And so it's interesting that that's kind of how your practice has evolved also. What's yeah. the what's the relationship that you kind of see between 
thinking of yourself as a writer or thinking of yourself as a designer, where do those things really, do you even see a difference anymore kind of between those practices? I mean, I do, uh, I see, I mean, design, what I love about design is that it's the proposal of ideas. And of course that is what you're doing in writing too. Mm -hmm. It is the forward motion, the suggestion of a new way of being in the world. I mean, the magic thing about design is that if you, take it seriously and you really go like, wow, that's a, that's an altered future. That's an altered universe. And if that thing could be undone and if that, if that, that case study is malleable, then maybe the whole world is unfixed and malleable. Like that to me, it never gets old. Like it never gets old, that feeling. So that's, that's why I love design. And that's why I love design more than art even. I mean, I was, uh, I mean, I'm I'm artificially hardening those boundaries, but you, you know what I mean. I know, that I is know that exactly art. What you, mean. You, know, you know what I mean. Design has about it a kind of optimism, and I'm small o. You know, a kind of it. It is propositional. It puts forth. It is it is proposing rather than just unmasking and re- mm-hmm. revealing. Mm-hmm. There was something about the gallery space that feels kind of static to me, where design is putting something forward. Now, writing, of course, is also putting things forward. I think you know I'm in the process of writing a book right Right. now for the first time and I I feel like I do need not just in addition to short form and long form journalism but I feel like I need for myself the discipline of writing that is different from design like design can do and especially because the afterlife of my work in design is in images right that circulate in the digital realm as ideas but there are ideas that are like a juxtaposition you know a reversal of expectations um the documentation of an event mm-hmm. that was an encounter in time. But uh, writing can be now, feels for me like a necessary discipline to go. These are h- actually hard questions. If I'm looking at the future of an inclusive world, whatever, like if I take, for me, writing is at the highest kind of most urgent stakes that is indicated in maybe in my design work. And that is, these. there are real politics here. There's real neglect in the built environment for marginalized bodies they're real rights issues. And I want to write about the way in which design makes those issues, you know, manifest. But I want the accountability to go like, no, black and white and in print. Where does it come from? What do we think about it? On the one hand, on the other hand, get it exactly right. Because that maybe is my scholar kind of coming out again. It's funny, like maybe that historian a little bit. Yeah. So, so like, I, I mean, I'm curious about this, this proposition of, of Michael Rocks that, that they are the same. I'd like to hear a little, a little bit more about that, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's it's th- that's it's one of the main reasons why I wanted to talk to you is because as somebody who has really only seen your work online, I've watched you know videos of you giving lectures, and we've communicated via Twitter. But as someone who you know essentially is you know kind of an outsider looking at your work those seem completely seamless to me in the, in your output of them. Um, and, uh, and it's the same way that I see Rem Coolhouse also is that, you know, his, he, he has kind of these ideas and these theories and sometimes it comes out in an essay and sometimes it comes out, you know, in a building or a class. And that's how I see your work also. And that it's, you know, sometimes it's a research project. Sometimes it's an actual artifact and, you know, now it's a, a book uh, so, so yeah, I, I kind of see it that you have them all together anyway. Well, it is true that I, 
you know, I think in, again, in writing Abler, I was, I, I didn't realize at the time that I was thinking, I'm going to try to put off having to decide between scholarship or writing and making. I'm like, I, I remember, and I, I was very influenced by Tim Maley. I don't know if you know him from quiet Babylon. That He's doing familiar. it wrong on Twitter. So he, he early on, he, he you know, he's just done a whole lot of a whole lot of writing, a whole lot of journalism, but also a whole lot of event wrangling and, mm-hmm. and collaborative design work. And he just for the longest time, I just watched him from afar. And now we've become friends. But he I just remember thinking like Tim is refusing to decide like Tim is saying, yeah. like, I'm going to do I have a multifaceted practice. And I don't know like why it took me so long to feel like it's it's okay. You don't have to be in one lane. I mean, right. there's actually a long history of people with a with a mixed practice. But I grew up, I don't know, I just kind of grew up with this very earnest, like, um, kind of obedient, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. very, you know, sort of keep your head down, you know, kind of upbringing, like yeah. don't toot your own horn and right. careful with your ego and so on. And, um, so I think it took me a while to feel like, Oh, I, yeah, let the ideas kind of manifest in the ways that they want to. And you don't have to be an expert to suddenly, mm-hmm. you know, um, to, to decide it's okay to make something. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, in general, for a long time, I was also really influenced in the course of Abler and kind of starting my work by Claire Pentecost and the, mm-hmm. the idea of the public amateur. Mm-hmm. My friend Kim, Kevin Hamilton pointed me out, to, pointed me to her. And, and Claire Pentecost just has this, I mean, that was, she was kind of critical in helping me think about taking an, op- taking an openly and transparently amateurs love and uh, modesty towards stuff you don't know and I think so more than even just the form of writing or design for how I was going to output ideas I had to make peace with not being an engineer not being in the sciences not being um it's like I'm glad you're asking me about this because I do think now I I feel so much energy and creativity and freedom to kind of go like maybe it's a book maybe it's a performance maybe it's a but it took me a long time and it took kind of the permission and the words of Claire Pentecost to kind of go, oh, no, the outsider, the amateur, right. with humility and love, like, has a role to play vis-a-vis right. big power structures, perhaps especially big science and big STEM. I mean, I did go through a long period where I thought, I mean, two or three years, where I thought, maybe I need a PhD and I've got to learn how to code and, like, become an engineer to speak about engineering. And uh, I realized at a certain point that I could do – I could – work in this way mm-hmm. based on other kinds of experiences in a, and it wouldn't have to be a kind of domesticated complementary way. Do you know what I mean? The way yeah. the arts are often like the enrichment for the, for the mm-hmm. sciences or the illustrator of the sciences or the, you know, the provocateur of the sciences. There's something else I think there, there's something more integrated and more rich and kind of there's like just another kind of adjacency. Right. And I realized at a certain point, like, Oh, Pentecost was talking about the way she's worked against kind of big um, corporate agriculture and the way that she brought and and has theorized, you know, about working as an artist in an almost willfully uh, modest and naive way, but working nonetheless against Mm. big behemoth structures um, and letting that be an artful form, you know? And so for a while I felt like, yeah, that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm sort of um, alongside and also then against when necessary the kind of big medicalizing um, logic of disability but also the you know just the kind of 
high tech, the mm -hmm. conflation of high tech with innovation and all that. So eventually I felt like, oh, no, I'm now I'm, of course, very professionalized and academic. Yeah. Like I have kind of so it's a different a different moment. But I feel now, in other words, just to circle back to your first query, like now I do feel like, yes, the design and the writing and that it all comes from the same kind of impulse. And yeah. it, it's all I can say is it's great getting older because I feel <laughs> more I yeah. don't, sincerely I feel more confidence I sort of feel more like oh I yeah I'm gonna even if I'm not sure if, if it's a new experience I'm not sure how to do it, what's next I'm gonna take those first steps mm -hmm. uh, you know this this podcast kind of at a high level is about design criticism it's about how we talk about design and, and what the discourse around design should be and I'm I have your website pulled up right now and on your about page you list you know that the spaces that you're interested in are Adaptive and assistive technologies, prosthetics, inclusive design, accessible architecture. And I was thinking about those and I was thinking about design criticism. And I feel like so much of the things that I talk about on this podcast is that design criticism needs to kind of move away from the single artifact and how it looks and into the world and how it affects the world. And I feel like those things you have listed are like exactly the types of things that design criticism should be talking about. And so I was interested in kind of your thoughts on, on the discourse around design and especially around these things that you work so closely in um, and, and that discourse and how that's kind of moving your work forward. Yeah, I mean, I think, especially when I think about what I'm tackling in my book, and I, it's really not written for a design audience, it's a, mm. it's a trade publication, but apparently, in for the general nonfiction reader, design books don't easily sell. It's still yeah. thought to be a kind of specialist enterprise. So I've had a lot of conversations with editors about how, what's the entry point? How do you get people to understand the profound mm -hmm. shaping of our lives that happens in design? And I do think... Um, uh, lately I've been thinking about design as the kind of the, the sensory entry point, the wonder that is um, th that's evident in the built environment. That is that, that the, that all the daily stuff that the detritus, the handheld things, but also the shape of our rooms and our cities is packed with human values. It's pa they're packed with unknown histories. They're packed sometimes with really accidental and, you know, kind of, Yes. arbitrary choices and that's people don't realize that either and if we start there with kind of like wow the wonder of how these things came to be considering how much we think of them as fixed and permanent mm -hmm. then again we start to open that up and think like what else might we also tackle and for me that that's a kind of side door into what I also want to talk about which is the urgency around yeah. disabilities so I'm trying to do a couple things right I'm trying to write about design differently I'm also trying to write about disability differently because mm. disability as a in for the popular reader is just like an abysmal landscape right now I mean the popular representation yeah. of disability is just it's just awful. There's no, it's either super sentimental or really heroic and overcomer kind of stories or inspiration kind of like with just treacle and purple prose. Like you just, yeah. it's really bad. Yeah. So I'm trying to figure out like how, for me to get people to think about disability with, with their wonder intact, to be interested in the adaptive human body and in the interdependent way all our lives are structured and 
that mm-hmm. all bodies have kind of openings and possibilities and yes, closures and things that, that they can't do. Just be interested, right? And then the, the urgency of that will become evident to you. But how do you get interested? Not in a kind of like eat your spinach way. Well, design is a way to get there. But I'm also fascinated by good design writing as such. And that and and there I go back to like Building Blog or like Alexandra mm-hmm. Lang or Alyssa Walker, yeah. these people that I was watching who have all the complexity of good histories and attentiveness to detail and you know, tracing those trajectories, but also we're writing resolutely for the general reader. Yeah. And I thought what these people do is to take the built environment, to take what we can sense in some one of our five senses or more and to use it as an index sort of iceberg style, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, of culture and of politics and of of interconnectedness. And I think, so I'm really excited about, and I I feel like there's just too little, I suppose, design criticism that takes us kind of into deep reportage, right? Right. With deep reportage kind of values on um, who are the people behind these things and how are people kind of circumventing ordinary design? Mm -hmm. And there's just so much that's fascinating. And in my field alone, you know, like, architecture for dementia, you know, and uh, um, a whole labor force in Japan and India that's a a vocational training program for people who go blind in old age and they become massage therapists. And so what happens then around like service design that accommodates difference in that way or depth space down at Gallaudet? I mean, that's just in kind of architecture and services, but like the OXO vegetable peeler that has its roots in arthritis. Like maybe people know that story, but it's one of many and they're not just simple plucky stories about like universal design and like edge cases that then affect everybody. That's one, Mm -hmm. but it's more that like, if you just start to look at the built environment, describe it, but ask what else is going on there. Who are yeah. the people behind it? What's kind of granny? What is this? What is the design actually activating and mm-hmm. making possible? Mm-hmm. What is it? How does the design return us actually to our lives? Like for instance, in my book, there is going to be a chapter about this man named Steve who lives here locally in Boston. He has advanced ALS. He was trained as a landscape architect, mm-hmm. and he designed a whole residence for himself and for people with MS. Who um, and with simple software mounted on his wheelchair. He can summon the elevator and open all the doors and uh, transfer himself from his bed to his bathroom, do the fans and the HVAC and the media in his room, all this kind of stuff. And and um, but what's interesting to me is that there are also people who live with Steve, who feed him and who make his dinner and who do all kinds of bodily care for him. And I'm interested mm-hmm. in saying, here's the design and the technology, and we can talk about how interesting this looks and all the clever ways that he made extra firm grass on the exterior so that it takes the weight of a wheelchair without getting stuck. Yeah, that stuff's interesting. But what's really interesting is that Steve orchestrated the technology and human interdependent care, like to build a community, you know? That's what's, it's returning you to life, not just sort of, it's not an object for contemplation only. We can be really fascinated by its form and its function, but I'm, as, I'm just as interested in what does this make possible? And that, that's a thousand little invisible behaviors until you, in good long-form reporter style, make it visible. Right. You know, that's, what, that's what's exciting to me. Yeah. And I'm curious how you, you work at a school also and you teach these things. How, how do you do that? I, that's a big question. But, you know, w- what types of things are you teaching to your students kind of about all of these subjects how, how do you kind of share that that knowledge yeah i mean par- 
that that this whole thing about um, Claire Pentecost and the public amateur and the not thinking only in complementarian terms, but um, more like smashing together disciplines. I when I finished at Harvard, I pitched to um, the RISD Digital and Media Department this class called Investigating Normal. Mm. And for me it was, and I said, you know, what I really want to do is see if I can, kind of experiment style, see if I can teach students who want to build gadgetry in a, in a kind of problem-solving paradigm and also mentor some students who want to make art. And like, can I take all this stuff that I've learned from Abler and can I say to them, you can do one of two things, but we're going to do it in the same house and we're going to look at each other's work and we're going to call it all one thing, which yeah. is this investigative practice, you know? Wow. Yeah. 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 And from, and I didn't fully know that I could do it. And in fact, so, so the chair then um, of the new media department, the digital and media department said, let's cross list it with industrial design. So this was perfect, right? Like people who were oh, really into function. So I got half grad students from industrial design and half from digital and media and it worked it went so well and I so I thought oh my goodness maybe I can do this even deep in the heart of engineering so I came to Olin and um that was kind of part of how I pitched my role to them yeah I mean so so what I do with students is very much tied up with Abler in my practice which is insisting that disability studies and disability culture and the the language of um the symbolic and expressive languages of identity that are tied up in art artifacts and art forms mm -hmm. can live alongside good engineering and that we can, if we take seriously um, some critical theory and some yeah. good strong criticism about how we talk about each other in the humanities, we can, we can have that, but not in over in the ethics seminar. We can have it in our studio, in that. our studio space. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, that just feels like, okay, this is an integrated education. So, of course, it's challenging. I mean, it's more challenging for engineers. I mean, I'm at a school where all the students are studying engineering. They do get arts and humanities stuff, but it is, for many of them, an introduction to critical theory, like just to talk about the constructed nature of identity and the self mm. and, you know, like that stuff yeah. is kind of new for them and they're all undergrads. So, but still in general, I've got people every year who are making artwork and people who are doing like super legible assistive and adaptive technologies with outside collaborators, you know, That's and so interesting. Yeah. So like insisting on doing it together has been, that's been, for me, that's the animating force. Yeah, and it's curious. I have just a couple questions I know that you know, we're starting to get short on time, but that was something that was interesting is that you are kind of embedded in an engineering department, and I think that just highlights this notion that design or the idea of design is something that's moved from the end of the process as something that's like decoration or surface to something that's truly at the beginning of the process now and is integrated throughout the whole thing, and I think being in an engineering department is like a perfect example of how that is true and is changing how we think about design. It's true. And I must say at Olin, Olin is a particularly, I mean, I think a lot of places are thinking more about design at the front end mm -hmm. and human centered design and so on in curricula yeah. now. But Olin has also would say it has a design led engineering curriculum. And what do we mean by that? That it's a design disposition toward questions, right? Mm -hmm. Where we're asking reframing problems regularly that we have a kind of nimbleness in the face of what our assume our assumed first you know impulses are for choices and then we can kind of you know pan back from right, those and we right. can commit hold it in the provisional we can you know 
in addition to being human-centered and collaborative in what we do. So I'm lucky that I work at a place that also values those things. Yeah. I, 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 this is not something that I was planning on asking you, but as we were talking, it's something that I've been thinking about the past couple days and actually seems like something that I would love to get your opinion on. I've been thinking about how there are all of these terms and all of these subdivisions for design. And we've just in this conversation have said, you know, social design, human-centered design, adaptive design, inclusive design, critical design. And, and part of me wishes and part of me thinks that, you know, a robust critical discourse that eventually all of those things can just be design and they don't need to be seen as this like small thing that a couple people do, but that's just how design happens. Um, What do you, this is something that I've just been thinking about recently, so I haven't fully formulated it, but what do you, does that kind of prompt anything for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree in the sense that, um, you know, people get hung up on, and we could be talking past each other, right, to be using mm-hmm. and to be separating all of these categories of design. And right, there's something really nice about reminding people, design is just the arrangement of mm-hmm. elements for a desired end, you know, it's, um, so uh, I think, but I, I do find working in an engineering context that I need to indicate to people which pole mm-hmm. of design am I sort of landing on or not. And because mm-hmm. in engineering design, remember, it can be kind of like, you know, clever problem solving by a different fix, better yeah. mousetrap style, you know? Yeah. And so, I mean, I know critical and speculative design is coming under a lot of fire for various kinds of reasons. And maybe part of that is just the nomenclature and, yeah. um, and probably that's kind of warranted, but in an absolute sense, I think you're right. I mean, right, right. I do. Uh, <laughs> but I also, I also see the very practical use for yeah, these things too. Yeah, that's kind of that's exactly the way I've been thinking about it too. Where I really do see it, I see the value in it, but I also see how that just puts up divisions that you know maybe don't need to be there and can make you know discourse better and make it so you know a graphic designer can learn from the things that you yeah. and your students are doing. Uh, I mean, one of my colleagues would just say. At, at the bottom, what do designers do? They represent. They represent ideas. Mm. So they're un, they're un, they're discontent with ideas in the abstract and in your head, or in bullet form or equation. They need to be represented, you know. And oh, there I is something that. about that. That's very kind of super, super distilled, right? Yeah. And I think, and if I had to say, like, right, what is my what is my kind of like restless impulse is to say impose form on that thing, like have that idea out in the world. And sometimes it needs to be unresolved and kind of like rough around the edges and like meant to get under your skin. And sometimes it's meant to kind of really suggest a new pathway, like, and and to really alter the way the world, the inherited world is, but but it's represented. I have to get it from here out here. And that's the process. I don't know. Yeah, no, I love that. That's, I've never, I've never heard that definition. And I, it's so, yeah, that's great. I, I really, I, I have never heard that before. And, and I'm all over that idea. It uh, works, I think. Yeah. yeah. My last question is something that kind of just encapul- encapsulates everything that we've been talking about. And, and I, I, I almost hesitate asking because it almost feels reductive after all of this. But I'm really curious about how, you know, your background and kind of studying 
you know, the history of ideas and critical theory and, and, and these sorts of things, what is the, just like very simply, what is the value of having that type of knowledge? I, so I'm, you know, I'm getting my MFA now and it's in graphic design, but I'm getting a concentration in, in critical theory. And so I, I, you know, I agree that it's important, but my undergrad education was none of that. It was all very formal and very about how to make things. Uh, you know, what's, what's the value in, in that that you see to kind of incorporate that into a design process? I don't think that's reductive at all. I think that's, a. I mean, I'm <laughs> wrestling with this right now and I'm realizing, so I can decide whether to say that my career path has been circuitous or whether, or instead that it's been actually a, a really zigging and zagging wide mm. traverse over a lot of disciplines. And from that, I am drawing from a really wide trough now. You know, yeah. like I'm really, I'm able to kind of, recollect and readings that I did like far outside of my fields and my fields in the sense of disability like I'm I'm really working with I'm lucky that I got a liberal education yeah. you know like and and to, so I, I mean the thing that I, I just wrote an email to engineering students this morning saying you know Austin Cleon you know output problems are input problems yeah. and most designers and engineers I think if anything they suffer from input problems and I don't mean reading like you know mm-hmm. And gadget and right. like those like those obvious things. I mean, really trawling wide, 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 and and setting up deliberately odd adjacencies and stuff. Like I just think you have to be omnivorously curious. I mean, to me, that's like the yeah. that's like the most important thing to yeah. be a good designer. It's I think to me it supersedes everything else. Like a kind of deep, deep curiosity about the world and literally in in every way because that's you just have no idea where good ideas are going to come from. I mean, I have a writer friend who says that curiosity is a holy thing. Like you should, yeah. you should always pay attention to it. Like if you're just passing by the newsstand and like some magazine cover that you've never bought before is calling out to you, you should like, just, it's like, don't question it. Just like go and kind of idly. So I, I'm lucky that I, I mean, it took a lot of, again, zigging and zagging and some of that was inefficient and I was underemployed and whatever for a while. But I also yeah. feel like, <laughs> Wow, I had a lot of, but when, and when I was in college, I did a lot of staring at the wall, like a lot of reading poetry, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of input, you know, so I feel lucky that I'm benefiting from that now. And I think, not to sound like an old, you know, like, it's only the humanities and the old form. It's not that. Right, it's right. like, you know, it's the truly, the truly cosmopolitan and global culture. Um, but I, I, I must say, I'm more and more I'm less about skills and more about um philosophical nourishment you know historical cultural nourishment yeah yeah I I love that and I I feel like that you know really does kind of embody how I see your work and how I see Mm. the work that you're doing and so I really um appreciate the work that you're doing and I love kind of seeing what you're working on I'm looking forward to the book and I really loved this conversation I thought it was so great and so interesting. So thank you so much for uh, of course. talking with yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. A pleasure. A total pleasure. This episode was recorded on February 16th, 2017. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.